What's Next with Peter Buff and I'm Jimmy Buff. In this episode, we featured Holly Wood, currently a PhD candidate writing about the modern crises surrounding love, dating, and sex. And occasionally, she says she writes about other things. The Youngians AV Club described Holly as a hyper-articulate, radical feminist communist which she says is not wrong. So this is our first meeting in person. I've read tons of her blogs and am uh, super impressed with the ability to break it down in ways that very few people are either willing or able to do. Uh, And in fact, a little nervous because she breaks it down so well, I'm afraid I'm going to get broken down too as we talk, but we shall see. Uh, And so thank you for coming on. And could you tell us, because we've really have just met um, and I'm uh, learning about your uh, graduate work. How did you become you in, in, in whatever, however you want to start with that? Well, one morning <laughs> right? in 1985, I came out of my mom. Yeah, okay. Good start. <laughs> Fast forward. Right? Fast forward exactly. 30 years. Yeah. Um, so, uh, So I went to Wesleyan University, which is a very, very progressive school. And I did not start as a progressive person. I I would say I was a pretty moderate Democrat in in college. And in the process, I went to grad school. um, I am a PhD candidate at Harvard. And one of the things that I learned over my time at Harvard is that, how do I put this? The left just really wants some teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's suffering for want of teeth. Right. And I think part of that is because we are very technocratic and we believe in sort of a false myth of meritocracy, which by virtue of going to Harvard and getting a Ph.D., I feel like I have I've, I've jumped that hurdle. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. <laughs> like I, I feel confident in saying I'm like, ah. Right. All right. Let's drop the pretense of that. You know, like, let's let's just talk like human beings again. Mm -hmm. And I think the left needs to embrace, you know, I'm from the working. I'm definitely embedded in the working class. Like my mother was a waitress. My father, you know, my, my stepfather is a tow truck driver. You know, I come from very blue collar roots and mm-hmm. I have always felt out of place in white collar America. Right. Like I've been going to elite schools now for over 12 years and I just feel like very I feel ostracized mm-hmm. as a working class progressive in these settings. So how could how else could how could actual working class people feel in these settings? And, and so my writing online really speaks to what I think is the core constituency of the left, right? Which is these smart working class people who don't necessarily go get doctorate degrees because God forbid, please don't get a doctorate degree. If you have a kid <laughs> who's even thinking about going to grad school, please just call me and I will talk them out of it. <laughs> but, you know, that's what I think. I, I really mm-hmm. think that we need to get back to who is our common constituency and and, and, there, and see what do we all have in common with each other instead of trying to be like, oh, how can we be more elite than now? Right. Yeah. Russell Brand uh, uh, 
explained it this way that you know the, the there's a reason the halls of congress look like the halls of harvard because the elite get comfortable in these settings and then they walk in and go oh this is just like where i was before whereas you know the average again blue collar worker w- would walk into the halls of congress and say wow this place is not for me this is not i don't feel comfortable here so the system is really built literally you know built um to make certain people uh feel comfortable and included and exclude most yeah that's exactly it and that's what i think my writing is trying to do and i've been exploring that space myself right online is is i I use a lot of curse words i use language that often gets called blue language quote unquote blue language right right well, and that's actually, that was my uh, curiosity around having you on the air. <laughs> it's like, I know how you write. I wonder if we're going to be able to get through a conversation, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it is it is necessary to break through uh, some uh, common language barriers or, or the fear, you know, of, of getting somebody upset. Uh, but I want to go back to the word you used, which was technocracy, mm. um, because uh, I am a believer that um, you know, uh, 200 years ago, everybody was farming mm-hmm. or somehow working really hard. Uh, men, women, children, everybody kind of knew what had to be done. They got it done. Everybody pretty much knew what their neighbor did. Uh, there was a certain commonality amongst uh, almost everyone, certainly 85 percent of the people uh, in the country and, and really in the world, but in this country in particular. The Industrial Revolution comes along and suddenly machines are doing mostly men's work and some women's as well, but mostly men at first. And so uh, what was uh, a very purposeful and uh, legitimate form of contributing to the species propagation ended because machines were doing it. And I don't think there's... Uh, a coincidence when you look at when machines started to do men's work and when men started to make up other stuff to feel legitimate. So you've got the economy, you've got bureaucracy, you've got technocracy, you've got all these things over the past hundred years or so that have been made up because essentially you've got a whole lot of, of, of not illegitimate, but certainly purposeless men in terms of what they contribute to the species. Mm-hmm. So th- th- I think that's the fundamental problem is it's a bunch of men <laughs> with nothing men. to do. Yeah, exactly. A bunch of useless <laughs> men that then have to make themselves feel important. And you get all, layer upon layer of special language in the medical field and the legal field and all these things. And and uh, again, paper pushing and, you know, of course, science and, you know, various things made some good progress but for the most part i think we're stuck in a culture uh that is being driven by men that are trying to look important absolutely uh anthropologist david graber calls these um can i curse on the air no um no no it depends on what kind of curse bs uh, you can say BS. BS jobs. Let's say that. Um, so anthropologist David Graeber, who is, he doesn't shy away from blue language. Uh, he right. calls these BS jobs. When you ask people what they actually do, most people will tell you in private that they don't do anything. Mm-hmm. That their job is literally what you said, was like pushing right. papers. Um, they don't feel like their job contributes to anything. Uh, and, and, and this is very, very true 
amongst the elite, right? These, right. a lot of jobs that people end up having are jobs that could be completed in maybe seven hours of work a week, mm-hmm. but you have to make the pretense that you're working full time. And so you say, you know, you're working 40 hours a week, but you don't really do anything but like browse Facebook all day. Right. So what is that really, what are we really doing with our productivity in America, right? We're, Mm -hmm. we're sort of wasting it on social media and, and yet that's where we're putting all our energy is social media. It's like, oh, everybody wants to work at Facebook or Twitter or Google. And none of those things, those really contribute to our progress. Like they, they help, but they're not the core aspects of our society. And then on the other hand, you have all these Wall Street jobs. Like 40% of the economy right now is in finance. Right. That's ridiculous. Right. That's yeah. absurd. Right. Like like you said, like most of our economy should have been agriculture. Right. And it shifted yeah. to just pushing money around. Yeah, right. moving money around to make money, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, well, that's, that's all you're doing. Yeah. yeah, the money, making money from money. And somebody said, and it may have been you, but it's essentially, um, it's it's money having sex with itself. In other words, <laughs> it's completely corrupt. It's right. not natural. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's an interesting way to frame it. But it's it's true. We're, we're now, you know, and, and you could argue that my dad is the, pinnacle of that you know he found a way to um to use the market system uh on itself and and it's interesting and he'll admit that you know he knows that he was a white male born at a certain time and and had all these advantages that were pure luck my dad doesn't feel entitled he doesn't feel special he doesn't you know it's just dumb luck and uh, that's probably what separates him from most everybody else on Wall Street. Um, but, yeah, it feels like if 90% of us were farming 200 years ago, now 90% of us, and I mean men, um, are literally doing nothing and cloaking it in uh, self-importance. And, of course, that's why we have the presidential election we have, I think. And the support therein. For yeah, it, right. Large, Absolutely. To a large degree. You know, those men go home and they feel that uselessness, you know, somewhere inside. Yeah. There's a deep sense of what am I really doing? Here? Yeah. And then that comes out in, in some sideward sideward way, you know, yeah, misogyny absolutely. or some such absolutely. thing, you know, and being a couple of men talking about this. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, where, where do we fit in the whole scheme of themes uh, then, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it, I think that's really interesting. Um, I said something this week about how Donald Trump like says that he's above everything and yet he he shows up to every event in a suit and a tie. Right. Which I think just speaks volumes to the level of pretense that we're we're working with, right? Like he's still not free and he has millions of dollars, but he's still not free enough to not show up to campaign events in a suit and a tie. Like, you know, like if I had that kind of money, I'd still show up in a hoodie and jeans, right? <laughs> right. Like I, yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> you know, if I were running for any office, if I felt free and above because of my money buys me this power to speak my mind and yet I still show up in a suit and a tie, how free am I? Right. And so, you know, there's all these contradictions right now in American masculinity. Um, There's this feeling like you have to have lots of money. You have to have lots of power. You need to be able to abuse women. Like, that's one of those things that Donald Trump represents is that ability to be above the law and be able to abuse women. Because that's what he's doing. Absolutely. And people cheer him on because it's like, yes, you're finally doing what I always want to do, which is like abuse women. Yeah. And and, I'm watching this and... It's it's really sad to me because we could be going in a different direction. Like we could have two progressive candidates competing against each other. Imagine a campaign between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Right. If we had a social democratic party versus, you know, the moderate liberal 
Democrat right. Party, right? We could be having that discourse, but instead we're actually literally having a conversation about a woman against a man who says, I want to grab her. Can I say right. that on here? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like, I want to grab her. It's like, you know, that's that to me speaks to this contradiction you guys are talking about, which is you know, women aren't even getting a voice in this. Right. Like, and, and, and is Hillary Clinton even really a woman's voice? I mean, I also bring that out in terms of is is she bringing uh, all of what uh, femaleness and womanhood can represent in our culture? And I would say no, but I don't think it's her fault. I would also say that she's had to become so much of a masculine um, you know, the masculine aspects of herself have to be brought out to prove she can run, you know, the Western world uh, or whatever, you you know, however you want to frame it. And it's and I would give anything to have her actually be the person that I think is under under there somewhere, but that has been, uh, you know, shunted in order to look presidential enough. Yeah. I mean, the, the definition sometimes for um, someone like Hillary Clinton as the leader of a country is, is she going to act like a man? Right. Which you is know? insane. And it's nuts. Completely nuts. Yeah. Right. So a couple of guys were just talking again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trying to solve. Right. Know, yeah. These larger right. uh, yeah. problems that uh, affect us, um, uh, gender problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, Zephyr was just in and, and she talks and we brought up the fact that why isn't Congress 50 percent women? I mean, it's just as simple as that on some level as if we're representational government. Where's the representation in that? Well, you know, it's interesting. It comes down to money. I think it always right. comes down to money. And like, right. who's who? Who has the money, and who are they willing to give it to? Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, right. I've, I've done a lot of work for fundraising for campaigns this you know last couple of years, and you know, you bring you present a female candidate, and men are just like, mm, you right. know, and they get yeah. cut down in primaries. It's not yeah. even the actual election; they get cut down in primaries, and that's true of. Anybody who doesn't fit the model of someone who we think is electable, right? right? So in you know, in Pennsylvania, we have John Fetterman, who is this huge guy. Mm-hmm. You know, on the stage, you look at a primary stage. He, he's running for he was running for Senate in the primary. You know, he's a huge guy, working class guy. He, you know, as articulate as I am, you know, he comes from similar background to me on the other side of Pennsylvania, and he's running against you know. This very, like we were saying before, this technocratic, jargon-filled elite that they know what words to say and they know what fundraising circles to tap into. And we're regenerating and reproducing these same people in office all the time because people would say, John Fetterman, you don't look like the part. Right. You're a big, tall, working-class guy. You don't fit the part. You're not electable. Right. And so we constantly just shunt out these other voices because, and and it's not even because they don't even get to get on the floor because right. we think they're not electable. We just, just like, I, I will be eminently not, not electable, right? I'll right. never be elected. Well, we're working on that. <laughs> <laughs> this is the beginning. <laughs> this, this is the beginning of my campaign. Very long right. and, and yeah, yeah intentional you know? slog towards uh, something real and yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the election of Hillary Clinton is not just like the election of Barack Obama didn't solve the race issue in America. Oh, right. We're not yeah. done. <laughs> no. Um, the election of Hillary Clinton will not uh, not address and will not solve the gender issue either. So so what does where what what is the future like? What it, if when you picture beyond what's here and now and you see the, the issues that are a problem? When you look to the golden future, what do you see? How do you see that? So I am actually a feminist theorist, like for literally. 
And so that's what we're asking. That's fun to say, right? Like, I actually am a feminist theorist. Uh, <laughs> I am a radical feminist theorist. And so, you know, one of the things I think of is, is what is what is radical feminism in practice? What is that? And it is this constant challenge and critique of the status quo and literally turning things inside out to question their premises, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. what we do. That's what feminist philosophy is. So one of those things you do is you say, for example, how feminist is it that, you know, we still have for-profit healthcare in America, right? right? That's absurd. There, there's no there's no feminist argument that could be made that saying that this, like, Obamacare is compassionate and we need to attack it and say, we need universal healthcare. That is the only feminist solution forward. Uh, war. War is eminently anti-feminist because mm-hmm. who suffers the most in war? Women and children. So, you know, come at this and say, like, Hillary Clinton, she's not going to end the human war. So let's right. keep pressing on that ground. Like, it's very easy for me to criticize Hillary Clinton as anti-feminist because she is literally involved in the war machine. That is right. her that, you know, you don't become secretary of state if you're not involved in killing people. That is like the that's the number one job description. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to say like a femi- that's a very feminist position in the cabinet. Um, and I know why she did it. I know why she took on that role. It's difficult. But like every, sta- you know, every secretary of state we've ever had is a warrant criminal by definition. There's no right. way around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, as a feminist, it's easy for me. So when I say as a feminist, I want to come at this and say, well, what are the feminist issues that we don't even see it, talk about because we take them for granted, like health care. You know, I really think universal health care is inarguable at this point. I know she came up on stage and said it'll never, never happen. But I'm like, it it has to happen. Right. We are committing crimes against our own people by denying them universal health care and subjecting their well-being to the market. That's just that's a war crime against our own people. That goes against the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights against our own people. It's like inexcusable. There's just so many reasons we cannot continue with this. And and so as a feminist, I come out to somebody, I want to have a country that's premised on compassion and care. And those are those are the two feminist things that I think I would want to build policy around is like, how can we create a more compassionate country? How can we com- commit ourselves to bettering everybody, make a country that works for everybody, not just people that go to Harvard and then work at Goldman? Like, I'm just, I can't take this anymore. And I think most people agree with me. That this is what we need. We need this upswelling of feminism and working class feminism. Thank you. Nicely <laughs> put. Because from where I sit and what I've seen specifically in the past 10 years with the foundation work is that um, uh, feminism uh, to me uh, represents a life force to some extent. Like, what does life want to do? I'll tell you two things. One, the foundation work. The other is living on a farm in the country and watching things grow and watching animals move around and all the things that species that have been here a lot longer than we have seem to have figured out better than we have. And, you know, I don't see a squirrel abusing its young. I mean, for whatever reason, our species is out of whack in terms of what we do to ourselves and and our young. And so I I frame it in what what nurtures and grows what wants to be grown. What uh, what is life force? And women are naturally more connected to that in all sorts of ways, whether it's through nature or nurture. And so there is a um, kind of uh, predetermination that feminism uh, will 
be in support of that. And and what I've I've felt is that um, it's it's somewhat maleness. It's somewhat predatory behavior. No matter where it comes from, it's it's power over as opposed to power with. It's whatever force is coming through mostly men that knows how. Uh, how far a, a woman or any nurturer will go to protect and nurture its young. And, and in fact, it will martyr itself uh, in doing so. It, I, I think that uh, that setup, uh, and, and I'm, I'm trying my best to try and explain this, but that, that, that men and that force of power over and control knows how far women will go to nurture and protect and exploits it at every turn. Oh, God, yeah. Like, this is why I, have, I fight for 15. I fight for 50. Yeah, Like, exactly. I don't just fight for 15. I fight for 15 because who who is doing most of our work right, right. now, our low-paid work? It's women with children. Uh, absolutely. They are our most vulnerable asset because the state denies them benefits for their children if they don't work full time. Right. And so who's benefiting from that arrangement, right? Walmart, McDonald's, right. Burger King. It's not women and their children. It's right. corporate entities that are exploiting their labor. And so I say, you know what? Fight for like, I mean, I fight for all kinds of things, but I, I, you know, one of the reasons that I became active at all in politics was because of Bill Clinton's policy to kill welfare. That, yeah. that personally affected me when I was a child, mm-hmm. right? That literally messed up my life yeah. when I was 10 years old and, and that messed up my life and I dedicated my life. I studied poverty. I went and studied, you know, I, these are the things that motivate me and drive me is that I want to create conditions that liberate everybody. And right now I see women with children as an exploited asset in America that are Absolutely. running the service industry and they are getting abused at every turn. And now they're being told on top of this, they need to pay for private health care. Right. So exactly. not only do they not have enough wages to pay their rent, because as we all know, you cannot pay for a two-bedroom apartment with minimum wage anywhere mm-hmm. in the country. Right. Nowhere. So these women can't even afford their rent. And now we're watching Obamacare premiums go up. That's inexcusable. That is a crime against humanity, because who's going to ultimately suffer the most? The next generation of children. Right. Exactly. And so I know we're uh, coming close to time here. And uh, what I'm going to try and do, uh, all you listeners out there, is try and convince Holly to move to Ulster County. (laughs) Just thinking about it. I am. Um, I really am. I genuinely uh, love this area. Pretty morning, wasn't it, this morning? It was a gorgeous morning. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Uh I love Woodstock. Uh, uh, Which which hopefully means that Holly will be coming on the show more often because uh, there's so much to talk about. We have not talked about your dissertation, which I think is is actually critical to not only the subject matter, but has ramifications way beyond. And I think that's probably why you you chose it. Um, just quickly, the dissertation is. So I wanted to call it "Why Dating Sucks." <laughs> uh, that was the original title, and then, and Harvard's like, "Nah, you can't. Re- that's not really academic." Um, so basically, I just want to study how people form couples. Like, how mm. do singles couple? And so I interview people between the ages of 25 and 35 about single people between the ages of 25 and 35 to ask them, like, how do you plan on finding the person you want to be with? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we in our theory and sociological theory, we think people aren't getting married as early as they used to, which means that singlehood now expands longer and longer over the life course. 
but we don't really know what people are doing, right? Mm. So we get, mm-hmm. you know, I was just interviewed for The Atlantic about dating app fatigue, right? Like <laughs> people can't take these dating apps anymore. And I, I agree, they're terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're awful because um, I think they render human beings into objects that you just swipe left and right on, which is a terrible way to think about other human beings, let alone people that you could potentially, you know, partner with. Man, the ultimate object, uh, objectification. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like literally objectification. Yeah. And I don't, I don't approve of those kind of, um, apps, but I realize that they're like, you know, every, the reason why people turn to them is because we are really suffering from this dearth of occasions to meet other people. Like we don't have social, like we don't have ice cream socials. We don't go to church. We, mm-hmm. we, we don't know how to meet other people. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean sexually. And I don't just mean like finding people to meet and have a date with. I mean, like we, we genuinely, as someone who does organizing, I have to fight people to talk to other people because it's just so alien to us Wow, to have conversations. Like we mm-hmm. won't pick up the phone. We won't go out to somewhere where we don't know anybody. Like I, I like people, you know, I invite people to events and they're like, I won't know anybody there. And I'm like, I never know anyone anywhere. (laughs) Right. And that's sort of the point. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, okay. We're going to have you back so we can get to know you more. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to meet you. Yes. That's it for the show this week. Thanks to Hollywood for more shows. Go to wherever fine podcasts are found. The music for the show is original and available at peterbuffett.com. I'm Jimmy Buff. We'll see you next time. Mm